Ain't no party like a deregulation party. When President Trump signed the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act into law on May 24th, the banking industry celebrated. And with good reason. The robust law is divided into six titles with 56 sections total, many of them outlining relief for institutions with less than $10 billion in assets, like Section 203, for example, which exempts said institutions from complying with the Volcker Rule. So we asked CSI's chief risk officer, which provisions of the law does he think will be most beneficial to banks? For small financial institutions, you're really going to see the, the benefit really coming in regards to the residential lending rules and regulations. I'm Laura Sewell. I'm Andy Goldstein, and you're listening to FinTech Focus from CSI. The Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act is the law banks have been waiting for to reduce some of the burden imposed by Dodd-Frank. The law's titles range from improving consumer access to mortgage credit to protections for student borrowers. As you can imagine, the legislation is uh, complex, to say the least. So when it comes to boiling down complicated legislation into something that is easy to understand, there's no one better than our guest. With us to break down the many facets of the law is Keith Munson, CSI's Chief Risk Officer. Keith, thanks for joining us on FinTech Focus. You're welcome. As we said at the top of the show, there are several provisions in the law aimed at helping institutions with less than $10 billion in assets. Keith, can you walk us through some of those provisions? You bet. We've got a couple that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, the first one that really comes to mind is the Volcker Rule. Um, another one that comes to mind is the examination cycle going from 12 to 18 months. Veterans uh, predatory lending uh, is a rule and regulation in there, though I don't know if that really helps small institutions. It mainly helps veterans. And then stress tests for uh, small institutions also. But that really goes up to $100 billion. Um, and we'll see, um, you know, those larger institutions um, get uh, some relief there as well, too. But, you know, anything underneath $100 billion also covers those smaller institutions as well. Keith, which aspects of the law do you view as the most beneficial to banks, particularly those under that level of assets that you mentioned? For small financial institutions, you're really going to see the the benefit really coming in regards to the residential lending rules and regulations, um, the mortgage appraisal um, rules and regulations, uh, HUMDA, Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. Um, These uh, um, rules are really going to offer more relief to the smaller institutions because they're just inundated with paperwork. And and as opposed to going out there, and I like to call it shoe leather, as opposed to the – as opposed to the small institutions just getting out there and, and, and bringing in loans and deposits for their institutions, they're hiring more individuals to stay, you know, back office and filling out paperwork, and they're just getting inundated. And, and I, I see those as the ones that are really going to bring the, the most impact to small financial institutions is hopefully getting rid of some of the, you know, pushing the numbers, pushing the paper, and getting them out there on the streets again and bringing in loans and deposits. Just as those that reduction in paper is going to be beneficial to the banks, do those benefits roll over then to consumers? And if so, how so? Whenever you reduce the regulation, now it it, it makes it more cost effective um, for the financial institutions, but in turn also passes directly onto the consumer. So the less paperwork you have, also hopefully you'll see a direct connection with um, costs going down for the consumer as well too. So, but 
We've yet to see that, though, but uh, hopefully that's a direct correlation. Yeah, and the only problem is it seems that many of the actions in the law do not have specified effective dates. So it it seems to us like this law is going to create um, sort of a detailed and complex implementation cycle. What do you recommend for financial institutions to stay on top of that? That's a great question, and and I know change management uh, has come up time and time again with the uh, the regulators, uh, your prudential regulators. And what I mean by that is, especially for small financial institutions, your your prudential regulators are the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the OCC, and they use this word change management. So whenever you have new rules and regulations come out, now in this case, you're seeing regulatory reduction, and the regulatory reduction goes through the same process as when a new rule and regulation goes into effect. So in this case, Senate Bill 2155 was signed into law in May by by President Trump, and so now it becomes law. So just because it goes into law doesn't necessarily mean that, yay, we all get to implement it uh, you know, at the time that we want. Now you have to have your prudential regulators take that law, and your prudential regulators write what's called regulation. And that regulation is what our financial institutions will be looking for, because that regulation gives them guidance. So change management over the next uh, 12 to 24 months is going to be very important for financial institutions to monitor this change. And so if you have a project management division within a financial institution, you know, we'd strongly make sure that these rules and regulations continue to be tracked through that. Or if you don't have a project management, make sure that your compliance officer or whoever you have monitoring this, make sure that they keep uh, an ongoing uh, pulse of the new regulations as they come out by the prudential regulators. You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're talking with Keith Monson, CSI's chief risk officer, about the Regulatory Relief Act signed into law by President Trump on May 24th. You mentioned that, it, especially in the, in the case of, of deregulation, that it takes a little while for that to get off the ground because, you know, regulations have to be written and things like that. Is, this, is it going to take another two years before banks actually see the effects of this? And conversely, are there any aspects of the law that you know of that have had an immediate impact? Yeah, you bet. Um, I hate to say it, um, but it is going to take a little bit of time. And within the rule and regulation itself, um, it comes in different titles, Title One, Title Two, Title Three, And and within each one of those titles, uh, going up to Title Six. Uh, each one of those provisions within the titles uh, came up with a, a date that it was to be implemented, and a number of them, and a matter of fact, more than a majority have uh, future dates to be implemented. There is a couple of dates in there, one that uh, just uh, recently came through um, in June of, of this year. It was, it was established as a June, June 2018 date was protecting tenants at foreclosure uh, reinstated. And so... It, that's a rule and regulation where the regulators have already implemented final guidance. It came out, and, and now basically it, it did away with the rule and the regulation that was implemented during the Dodd-Frank uh, rules and regulations, and now basically it put it back to where it was before. And so banks are going to have to go through and reinstate their previous policies and procedures for that one. But 
your, to your direct question, you know, 12 to 24 months, it's going to take them some time. But the Federal Reserve came out and they promised that they're going to put this as a high priority to hopefully move these things along uh, relatively quickly. And, and we just hope that the other prudential regulators, the OCC and the FDIC, um, follow suit. And what I would really like to see is, is that each prudential regulator doesn't issue separate guidance, but I'm very hopeful that they issue interagency guidance, which is combined. And so then that way, all of the banks are following the same rules as opposed to, you know, if you go to the FDIC, to the OCC, you're following different rules within our banking industry. So I'm hopeful that they're going to do interagency guidance, and hopefully it'll be sooner than later. I just want to follow up on something that you that you said previously, um, talking about the different titles of this law. Title one has to do with improving consumer access to mortgage credit. Title two, uh, regulatory relief and protecting consumer access to credit. Title three, protections for veterans, consumers, and homeowners, et cetera, et cetera. So you're saying that each one of these titles has, it sounds like, far different effective dates for each. Is that right? You bet. Okay. And um, it, within each one of the titles, it specifically, if there's a specific date, you know, immediate, um, it states it within each one of those titles or the sections within the titles. But a lot of them are left up for, um, you know, further um, guidance up to the federal regulators. The regulators are going to have to provide that. And so that's the one thing that banks are going to have to pay special attention to is, is when those dates come out, and they're going to have to look for those. Now, as I mentioned earlier, deregulation happens the same way regulation happens. And so um, regulators are probably going to be issuing this. Some may issue um, notice um, of a proposed rule and regulation, which gives banks uh, some input on how it, they should look to finalizing that. Um, rule or regulation. And then once it goes final, they usually give banks, you know, a time period in which they need to bring their, their services into compliance with that. So that's why I'm saying over the 12 to 24 months, it's, it's just going to be a gradual implementation of these rules and regulations. Would you say, Keith, that the deregulation process, is that as involved as it is for banks when they're dealing with a brand new regulation? In other words, going backward, is that, would you say, easier than starting up with a new regulation? Laura, that's a great question. And and, uh, I wish I could say yes, and, and I'll probably shock you in my answer, but may even be harder or more difficult for financial institutions because, as that uh, old saying goes, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And <laughs> and what I what I mean by that is is here you've you've set in place um, and in motion new rules and regulations, and banks have spent monies, um, talents, uh, resources to implementing new rules and regulations and training their staff. And now what you have to do is, is everything that you've trained your staff, you're going to have to back that out. Mm-hmm. And so whenever you back something out, it's going to be more difficult because somebody's learned the old way. Now they got to learn something new. When you get a new rule or regulation that comes in, like um, the beneficial ownership rules under CIP, you're kind of piggybacking off of old rules and regulations, and you're just enhancing uh, procedures that you already have in place. Well, when you're deregulating, now you're taking things away, and you're having to follow what the prudential regulators establish as guidance. And so now you've got something already etched in your brain is, oh, this is the way we're doing it. Oh, am I doing it right? And so it, now you enter in human um, air, and 
that's just going to be difficult to continue to, to attract. And small institutions are, that's why I wish I could say it was going to be easier, but smaller institutions are going to have the difficult time in training and doing those resources to also reduce the rule and regulation as well. Gotcha. So it sounds very much like a double-edged sword. Exactly. You're getting the relief of regulation, but you have to retrain your staff. And and that's kind of a trend that we're seeing. Hopefully, you know, in Washington, D.C., I'd like to see regulatory reduction come into place. But, you know, if if you have a Republican come into office and then you you take regulation away, but then you get a Democrat come in the office and then they put regulation in, we're just – we're tearing down what one puts in and then we're building back up what somebody else takes away. And, and I just use that as a, as an example, because that just seems to be what happened in the recent past here, but you could flip the parties, um, you know, either way. Right. And, and that brings up one of the aspects that I think is one of the most interesting about the regular regulatory relief bill. And that's several Democratic senators co-sponsored it. In your opinion, why do you think this bill in particular garnered what is arguably rare bipartisan support? Obviously, these views are are my own um, personal opinions, but uh, whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, one of those things that you have to keep in mind is, is, you know, you draw a line in the sand and whatever side you're on, at the end of the day, a loan costs you money. And as a consumer, it doesn't really matter. And and so Republicans and Democrats both want to see the cost reduced in the financial industry. And so I think what you're seeing is you're starting to see people cross over and work in a bipartisan nature to help those smaller communities because I'm a firm believer in the dual banking system. And what I mean by the dual banking system is, is your large banks out there have cost and um, loans but if, you, if you're in rural America and you go into a large institution, those larger banks are not going to know you as, as good as a small community bank. And the dual banking system allows smaller banks to participate and compete with the larger institutions on a competitive advantage. And so, so both Democrats and Republicans are seeing this. And I think what you're seeing is, is that the small banks have been bending the ear of our legislators and our our congressmen in Washington, D.C., and saying, wait, enough is enough. And we banks are paying more money on rules and regulations, and we need to bring that uh, back um, so that our loans and our deposit products are cost-effective for the consumer. So I, I really I really see both Democrats and Republicans wanting to work closer together in the reduction of rules and regulations. After a break, we'll ask Keith how community banks will benefit from the extended examination cycle outlined in the law. You're listening to Fintech Focus from CSI. CSI's Compliance Update webinar on August 22nd is your go-to resource for actionable insight to help keep your financial institution compliant now and prepared for the future. Register now at CSIweb.com to join Keith Monson, CSI's Chief Risk Officer, for a guided tour through the latest regulatory updates from Washington, including a detailed breakdown of what the Economic Growth, Regulatory Relief, and Consumer Protection Act means for financial institutions. We'll see you on August 22nd. I want to get back to a provision that you mentioned earlier. You said that the law extends the examination cycle from 12 months to 18 months, and that's for banks with less than $3 billion in assets. What does that extension mean for those institutions? Um, Help me understand what type of difference that makes for them. 
that's a good question, Andy. Um, this is one thing that uh, small community banks have, have constantly uh, said just adds time and energies and resources to their staff. Um, whenever regulators come in, they, the regulators, um, usually we, it has, a, when you say the word regulator, usually it has a bad connotation to it. But in this case, you know, regulators are meant to watch over the safety and soundness of financial institutions. So when the regulators come into your, to your bank, they really want to spend as, the least amount of time in there because they know that you're taking away from your, your time, your, your resources um, from individuals doing their day-to-day functions because you're addressing the questions um, that they have. And so when regulators come in, they give you a, a laundry list of items that you need to collect and provide to them. And then when they come in, you've got uh, examiners questioning your loan staff in regards to the safety and soundness of a loan to make sure that it, uh, the consumers are paying it back in a timely fashion, which means that you have um, income. You know, those are interest-earning assets, which is as a loan, and you don't want it to be non-performing because that makes your bank failing. So regulators look at all of these, and the community banks understand their, their consumers' a lot better than the regulators that are in Washington, D.C. But when you look at something on paper, it might appear to be higher risk. So when the regulators come in in regards to their exams, they're taking away um, loan officers and other personnel within your financial institutions, uh, clearly time in which they could be um, making a loan or working with a consumer. And so the regulators see that also, too, that this is very time-constraining uh, for financial institutions. So moving that from a 12-month to an 18-month cycle, even though it's six months, boy, over time, that means the regulators are in your financial institution less, which gives your personnel more time to be bringing in loans and deposits. And so that's the direct correlation that banks are seeing relief from. Keith, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the Volcker Rule. Banks with less than $10 billion in assets are now exempt from the Volcker Rule. But many thought that the Volcker Rule wasn't aiming at community banks anyway. So how will community banks benefit from this supposed new exemption? Really what the Volcker Rule is, is it's, it's basically in the simplest form is, is banks could trade um, and and basically on their corporate profits. And so, one, that become risky, um, but it's doing away with proprietary trading. And so that was the purpose or the intent. So if you understand the intent of a rule and regulation, you can say, oh, I, now I see why it's there. It's to protect the financial institutions. But really, your larger financial institutions do this um, more frequently um, than smaller institutions. And so your larger banks are getting into derivatives and to proprietary trading. And just by the domino effect, you know, they figured that smaller banks were doing this as well, too. And indeed, there were some small banks doing this. So when they implemented the rule and regulation, they were really finding it that it was difficult to implement for smaller institutions. So it was kind of a catchphrase there, but this exemption is critical so that it now puts it on paper. It's better for small community banks so it doesn't affect their normal banking operations on a day-to-day basis. So it was necessary to, to finalize that rule to make sure that exemption came for small institutions also. Uh, sticking with community banks for a minute. Um, so at, at the onset of this law, several senators said that loosening the, the regulatory burdens outlined in this law will make it easier for community banks and their constituencies to offer financial service and access to credit to uh, rural and lower and middle income customers. In your opinion, do you think the law is equipped to do this as written? 
You know, that's a great question because whenever you bring in rural low- and middle-income individuals, first thing that comes to mind is community reinvestment or CRA, and the rule and regulation that's closely tied to that is the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, or HUMDA. And so the HUMDA that just went into play, this is going to be the third change just within the last couple of years in regards to Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, but basically that's gathering government monitoring information to make sure that banks are not um, having discriminatory lending practices. Um, And so in regards to the discriminatory lending practices, really we haven't seen any relief to date in regards to low to moderate income individuals. And the impact that's only going to do is it's only going to go to those institutions that are less than 500 open-end or 500 closed-end loans uh, originated over the year, and, and, and we're still waiting on that guidance. So um, to date, I can't say that we see much regulatory relief. Hopefully it will. Hopefully it will eventually bring that impact to, to low and uh, middle income, but right now we just haven't seen it. Bottom line, is this bill a sign of further deregulation to come? And if so, where will we go next? In my 30 years, or I should say nearly 30 years, it's almost 30 years in the financial industry, um, I've only seen one regulation be removed, and that's Regulation Q. Um, And in in regards to Regulation Q, we're seeing more rules and regulations being implemented than we are um, seeing them being taken away. So this is a very – this is a positive step in my mind uh, when you see that uh, the regulators, uh, as you guys mentioned, bipartisanship, you know, Democrats and Republicans of both um, alike are, are, are really trying to have that regulatory burden. Banks' uh, voice is being heard on Washington, D.C., on the Hill. Um, so I would like to say that there's going to be more regulation and more relief coming. I just I hope to see the, the regulatory relief Uh, bill that was passed here. Hopefully this is the start of good things to come. Um, You asked, where is it going? Um, Currently right now, the number one concern in Washington, D.C. clearly is privacy. And what I mean by privacy is cybersecurity rules and regulations. Um, We've seen a rule and regulation called GDPR, the General Data Protection Rule, uh, being implemented in Europe. And I think what you're going to see is you're going to see more privacy rules being implemented in Washington, D.C., just the, the concern over everybody's sensitive customer information, your Social Security number, your account numbers. So I, I really foresee there's going to be more rules written as opposed to reduced, but I really see that we're going to be working more towards some, some cybersecurity and some privacy rules and regulations, which really affect consumers. And that's what D.C. is, in, in my opinion, is concerned about. Every time we talk to you, Keith, I feel like we get such an education about things that are going on. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Uh, we learned a ton, but I feel like we we also barely scratched the surface. So um, we, we look forward to hearing from you again during the compliance update webinar on the 22nd, where I know you'll be jumping into issues uh, regarding uh, the Bank Secrecy Act and, and anti-money laundering and uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and all that good stuff. So uh, we will hear from you again soon. But thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on FinTech Focus. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Keith. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of FinTech Focus. Thanks again to Keith Munson for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. To learn more about the Regulatory Relief Act from Keith, head to csiweb.com to register for our free compliance update webinar on August 22nd. And while you're on the website, you can check out previous episodes of this show and learn more about who we are and what we do at CSI. 
You can also subscribe to Fintech Focus wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been great talking with you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.